for us to think we're going to escape it is foolish, but his grace is always sufficient. Amen. It's a very rare thing for me to have this many of my family in a service. My sister and two of my three sons and their wives and my grandson, that's, uh, that's rather rare for me, but I'm thrilled that they uh, came tonight and glad they're here. And it's been a real privilege for me to be already enjoy their ministry. Andy's ministry, I enjoy listening to him. Don't get to do it as much as I'd like to, but uh, always enjoy it. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'm going to invite you to open with me to the Matthew Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16. <clears throat> and if you could and would, I'd like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew, chapter 16. <clears throat> I'm going to break in at verse 21 and read down through about five verses. Matthew 16, verse 21. And the verse 21 starts out with three very interesting words because um, uh, it, 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 it uh, announces a point in time in the life and ministry of Christ. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Father, have your way in the continuance of the service. Thank you now for all that you have been doing, all you're doing that we don't even know. We just commit this to you in its entirety. Speak through your word one more time and may it give us life to continue to be faithful even unto the end. And then we shall receive the crown of life as Paul admonishes us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to talk tonight about true discipleship, or what is a true disciple. Now the reason I mentioned to you to look at those first three or four words in my passage of verse 21, if you remember in the fourth chapter of Matthew, verse 17, following the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You recall he was baptized at the hand of John the Baptist, and then following his baptism, the confirmation of God, who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It then said the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. And you remember 40 days he prayed and fasted, and then the temptations that ensued with Satan, and finally angels came and ministered to Christ. Following that temptation, we read the words, from that time began Jesus to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those three words from that time was an initiation of the ministry of Christ 
in this world. It was then he began his earthly ministry. Well, now, as I read the words in your hearing, it says, from that time forth. This is the end of his beginning, uh, the end of his earthly ministry, and now it's the beginning of him facing the cross. His earthly ministry is now coming to a close, and he's now facing the inevitable where he will be crucified. Now, if you remember Paul writing to Timothy, he said one of the mysteries of godliness is the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation, in order for Jesus to redeem man, my Bible teaches me that man, Jesus, had to become incarnate. He had to come in the flesh and blood. God as God could not save man because man sinned. Man had to die. But man as man couldn't save man because man couldn't produce a sinless sacrifice. So God in Christ became man in order to offer himself the sinless sacrifice for the world. Therefore, deity united with humanity. Remember John said in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh, and it tabernacled or dwelt among us. Now, his humanity did not eclipse his deity, and his deity did not extinguish his humanity. He is the God-man. He was the God-man as he walked on the earth. Now, throughout the Gospels particularly, you see the joining of humanity and deity. Let me give you an idea. You remember over in Isaiah Chapter 9, we read the words, Unto you a child is born, and unto you a son is given. When you read the words, Unto you a child is born, that's his humanity. But when you read the words, A child is given, that speaks of his deity. There you see the connection between humanity and deity. You remember another time when Jesus had told the disciples, after being so tired and pressed with so many people, he wanted to get on the other side of the lake and rest. He said, launch off to the other side. And as they were making their way across the lake, you remember that Jesus went to the back of the boat and went to sleep. If you recall, the storm raged and the tempest blew and those disciples were fearful that they were going to drown. And so they awakened Jesus and they said to him, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus then awakened now, walks up on the deck, stills the storm, and they make their journey safely across the lake. Well, you see his humanity, don't you, as he was tired and needed his rest and went to sleep. But we see his deity when he could stand on the deck of that boat and speak to the storm, and is stilled. Humanity, his deity. You remember there was a time it was, uh, they had to pay their taxes. And you recall that Jesus paid his taxes just like anyone else. He said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar, render unto God the things which are God. But when it come tax time, he didn't have the money. And so Jesus called a fish up from the deep and took a coin out of his mouth and paid his taxes. You see his humanity in that he had to pay the taxes. But you see his deity in that he was able to perform the miracle and call the fish up from the deep and take the corn out of his mouth to pay the taxes. You remember the day that Lazarus died. And you remember Jesus delayed his going to the country where Lazarus had died. And there was reasons for that that we won't go into tonight. But finally he says to his disciples, let's go over Lazarus had died. 
And they were fearful because they thought they would be taken captive and maybe suffer a martyr's death at that time. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And it says, as he stood by the grave, he wept. And it said, the people said, behold, how he loved him as he wept at the grave of Lazarus. But then he backed off and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth out of the grave. We see his humanity in that he stood there and wept at the grave of Lazarus. But we see his deity when he spoke and Lazarus came forth. You see, Jesus was born of a virgin in order to come into the world and die a felon in our place. As Savior on the cross, he stands all alone. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved but the name of Jesus. The cross, however, was not only a work done for us, it must become an experience wrought in us. In other words, as a Christian, our identification with the cross demands an internalization of the cross. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I am crucified with Christ. He's not talking about the birth now. He wasn't talking about being born again. He's talking about something following or subsequent to the new birth, an experience with the cross. And many Christians hesitate and are very reticent at this point when it comes to the message of the cross. Did you notice Simon Peter here? Simon Peter, when Jesus said he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and raised the third day, Simon Peter, a disciple indeed, rebuked him. And he said simply to him, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto you. And then Jesus looked at Simon Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, I have to tell you, I believe Jesus knew exactly Peter's reactions. I think he knew exactly what Peter was going to do, and I think he used this occasion to an opportunity to contrast the difference between the spirit of the world and the spirit of the kingdom. You see, the spirit of the world is self-sparing, self-shielding, but the spirit of the kingdom is self-sacrifice. In order to be a true disciple, all other allegiances, all other loyalties must be secondary to our love and loyalty to the Christ of Calvary. In, John, in Luke chapter 14, which I won't take you over there, but sometime you go read the same passage in another writer's emphasis, Jesus makes it very clear that unless one is willing to make him Lord of all, himself, his children, his parents, his, all of his family, unless Jesus is first three times, he says, unless you do, you cannot be my disciples. And I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. It's one thing to be forgiven of our sins, but it's quite another thing to be crucified with Christ and be cleansed from the sinful self, uh, normally called the carnal mind or carnality. And so once we have the destruction of sin and the dethronement of the self, it is still a requirement that there be a continual denial and discipline of our walk with Jesus in the legitimate self. Now, I mentioned this morning, those of you who were here, that when I read the Bible, it does not flatter me. It gives me cold facts, and most of the time I have to make adjustments in my life because we are still human, and we're still infirm, and we still make a lot of mistakes, and we're still erring in judgment, but we do not have to be wicked and vile and sinful in so doing. 
in the word of God, the holy life is often distinguished as a, the presence of a heavenly flame. Flame, the fire, for example, in the Old Testament, you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. <clears throat> you remember those gods of Baal tried to uh, get their God to come and consume the sacrifice. And they prayed all day and long and they were unable to do anything. And finally they poured water over all the sacrifice. And then Elijah prayed about a 30-second uh, prayer and the fire fell, consumed the sacrifice, licked up the water. And the fire of God was evident on Mount Carmel. You remember there's another time in Malachi, written the last, uh, last book in the Old Testament, 400 years of silence thereafter until John the Baptist came on the scene. And Malachi said, the Lord is likened to a refiner's fire. Interesting. When John the Baptist did come on the scene, he said, I baptize you with water and repentance, but there's one that comes after me, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost fire whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather the wheat into the garner. Hebrews says that our Lord is a consuming fire. Now, fire has a twofold function. Fire obviously destroys all that God condemns, but it also illuminates where he dwells. And in Leviticus chapter 6, in the Jewish economy, we read the words, The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar, it shall never go out. You know, uh, in the old uh, Hebrew teaching, the altar was never to be without fire, and the flame was never allowed to go out, and that is not only true in the Old Testament now, we move from the economy of the temple into the temple of the heart, and consequently we must guard the flame and never let it go out. Uh, we, in this, in this, as disciples of Christ in this generation, we are delivered from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. And consequently, while we are delivered from our filthiness, we will never be delivered from our earthliness. And I say that because uh, man, of course, is made, I think Oswald Chambers said, man is dust and deity. In other words, man is made out of the dust, but God indwells man, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and yet we still have this humanity on our hands. And so consequently, we are called to fight the good fight of faith of what he was singing about tonight because the Christian battles constantly. You're not going to be a Christian and walk with Jesus without a constant battle. Uh, he said, they mistreated me, they'll mistreat you. A servant's not better than his master. Uh, you will, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And consequently, it's seldom a battle of willfulness in the Christian walk. It's usually the battle of weakness that we deal with. And that's why we are admonished constantly to guard the flame and keep the love warm in our hearts. Sisters here tonight, and we were raised in a little three-room house with an attic room, and we didn't have a furnace when we were growing up. We, we never knew how to just turn a knob and it warm up. We never had such a thing as that. I said we never also had any running water unless we spilled it on the floor, and the floors were always, uh, it'd run anywhere on the floor. There wasn't any level floors, but we didn't have any of those luxuries when we were growing up. We had an old cook stove, range cook coal and wood cook stove in the kitchen, and we had a warm morning heating stove in the living room. Uh, in the in the in the winter time, we would do our best to keep the warm morning stove going all night long. 
but uh, we would also of, we would oftentimes in the kitchen where the old coal wood range stove was, where my mother cooked and and did all made all her meals. Uh, in the evening, we would clean out the firebox, and uh, we would put the paper in there. Sometimes little corn cobs in there. We put the kindling in there. We put the coal in there. And doing what maybe they wouldn't like for us to do these days, we had what we call coal oil or kerosene, and we get it all set up with the ashes out of it and it ready for the next morning. So when the morning came, instead of running around in a cold house, freezing to death, you had it all ready to pour the kerosene on the on the wood and the coal and the, and the paper and light a match and, and the fire would go, assuming the drafts were where they ought to be. <laughs> That's what we did. And oftentimes... We didn't know what it meant to be warm. I mean, it's just an old cold house. Well, I say that because I've discovered there's three things necessary in building fires that you have to do to keep the fire burning. Number one, you have to keep the ashes cleaned out. Number two, you have to keep the drafts open. And number three, you have to fuel the fire. Now, I think there's a spiritual significance here. When you talk about cleaning the ashes out, we cannot live on past blessings on the one hand, and at the same time, we cannot be hindered by past faults. The enemy loves to keep bring up the past. The enemy loves to bombard you and constantly uh, threaten you, and there's times you have to say, forgetting those things which are behind. You know, when I think of Saul, who was a murderer, in fact, he was one of the early terrorists of his day, and yet God was able on the road to Damascus to transform that man's life. And when Philippians has said, he was guilty, you remember, of murdering the Christians. And yet when God converted him, became one of the greatest exponents of truth, 13 letters in the New Testament he wrote. And in Philippians he says, forgetting those things which are behind, I'm pressing toward that which is ahead. There are times the enemy likes to haunt us, and I'm sure uh, Paul had to face that. So that's keeping the ashes cleaned out. The breeze, keeping the drafts open, would be through your prayer, through supplication, through intercession, and uh, praying to God, keeping that drafts open between you and God. The few, obviously, is study, witness, worship, and attending all the means of grace possible. Now, I've said all that to say this. Doctrine, and, and, and by the way, folks, don't ever, don't ever be uncharitable to doctrine. Doctrine is to preaching what the flesh is to a skeleton. I hear people say all the time, I'm not interested in doctrine. You know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard tell of. It simply means teaching. And doctrine in the head is very essential. But it is only effective as it's governed by love in the heart. Now I want you to keep in mind the doctrine in the head, love in the heart. Let me allow, by using, illustrating with this analogy of the flame, a piece of wood is likened to the doctrine, and the flame of fire is likened to love. Consequently, Unlike a piece of wood that is solid and static and, and stable and constant in its form, love is quite different. Love is very soft, like a quivering flame. It's fluid-like. In fact, it needs constant tending. Doctrine, like a piece of wood, is fixed. It's unchanging. It's easier. 
to retain a fixed truth in your mind than it is to retain a fixedness of affection in your heart. And consequently, we are going to be faithful disciples of Christ. We have to be diligent. We have to be disciplined in keeping a loving flame aglow in our heart. Guard the flame. Guard the fire. Keep it ever burning. If we fail to guard the flame of love, the sweetness and the beauty of holiness is apt to become very sour and very ugly and it isn't long till we manifest a harsh and a bitter spirit. I know that because some years ago I experienced something I never have gotten away from because of what it did to me. And, and I think sometimes if we're not careful, the doctrine of holiness suffers more from its exponents than it does its opponents. I... Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but I remember we were putting windows and doors in our home. And it had been several, uh, we got all of them in, it was up and late in the fall, but there was a door that they didn't have available at the time. And so they said that when it come in, we'd get the door and we'd get it on. Well, a week or so went by, and of course I'd traveling around in, in revivals and uh, they said be here probably next week and they put it on and a week went by, came home and the door wasn't on. Uh, they hadn't contacted Barbara. We didn't know where it was. So I went back to another meeting, came back the next week and asked if they got the door, didn't have it. Uh, so I decided to call and say, did that door come in that you said you're going to put on? Uh, no, it, it didn't come in. It may be on the truck today, though. So I said, okay. I said, if it would, I'd like to get it in, you know, because it's getting cold, getting winter time. I remember it, they didn't come the next week, wasn't there. The next week, I think, I think it went about five weeks or so. Didn't have the door, but every time I called, three times I believe, they said, it may be on the truck today, <laughs> may be on the truck today. So about the fifth time, uh, the fifth week I called and they said, uh, you know, it didn't come in last week, it may be on the truck today. I evidently got tired of hearing that song and dance, and I said, ma'am, you've told me that now three different times. And I said, I really like to get that door on because it's getting late in the year. As I was talking on the phone to this lady, who I'm sure had nothing she could do about it, she was just sort of the sounding board, I watched Barbara and she kind of shook her head, kind of like that, you know, and I didn't know why she was doing that, and so I, when I hung up, I asked her, so why, why were you doing that? Well, she said, I don't think it was a very nice thing to, way to talk to her. And I tried to justify it. I said, well, you know, i got to get that door on. I don't know how to get them to do it. I said, i got to be assertive a little bit. So I went outside, and I think I was going to mow the yard for the last time in the, in the season. And as I walked, all I could do was see Barbara going, going like that. And I thought, oh, my. And so I had to come back in the house, get on the phone, call that lady, and apologize for uh, being so curt with her about that door i got to tell you something, as I never have gotten over that, I'm, I'm reminded of the psalmist David, the 51st Psalm. If you're a Bible student, you know that's a penitent prayer. And David prays after committing terrible offenses, adultery, he had the woman's husband murdered on the battlefront, he was guilty of murder, and finally the Nathan revealed him his ugly sin. 
and David was haunted by his sin. And he prays in the 51st Psalm, of course, you, you have read it, you've probably memorized it, wash me from mine iniquities. He said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Blot out my transgressions, create in me a clean heart. And on and on and on he prayed. But then he prayed in verse 10, a prayer that I'd never heard anybody deal with. And he prayed these words, renew a right spirit within me. It's impossible to retain a pure heart without maintaining a right spirit. Now, it's important that we know apologies, repentance, are very consistent in the Christian life. We've done it. I've done it. You've done it. But I do want you to note, people not only listen to what we say, they also watch what we do but they feel what we are. Consequently, the spirit of a person is very hard to define, but it's very easy to detect. I've been in places before now where I didn't sit down. I wanted to make a quick getaway. I could tell that when you walk in, the atmosphere would hit you. And I knew it wasn't a very easy atmosphere, nice atmosphere. And if, this, if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And by the way, when it speaks of the spirit of Christ, obviously the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit's spirit, if you please, is what is to exude from you and me, or I could put it another way, the fruit of that spirit ought to be very evident. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and gentleness and meekness and temperance and faith, all of those things is the exuding of that spirit of Christ that is within you. The spirit of Christ is one of kindness and compassion and love. It's one of meekness and humility. And when Jesus was mocked and spat upon, ridiculed and buffeted, I can tell you, it said that he opened not his mouth. It was a spirit of devotion that was in Jesus' heart. In fact, oftentimes he would withdraw himself from the crowd and go to a place apart, maybe on a mountainside, but get off to himself in the desert. You know, it's always been interesting to me if he who really needed to pray so little prayed so much, why is it that you and I who need to pray so much pray so little in comparison to the Savior? Why the creation of a clean heart is done in a moment at an altar. I have to tell you, that is not all there is to the Christian walk. The renewal of a right spirit is a continual need. Some time ago in my study, I read a statement that has sort of penetrated my thinking like few have for some time. The man said, great light in religious matters without great love is very dangerous. Great light, doctrine, knowledge, without great love is a very dangerous thing. So Peter admonishes us when he says, with diligence we are to add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. 
having said what I've said up to now, I could capsulate it probably by just simply saying we must keep our affections pure, warm, and tender at all costs. Because Paul said the end, the fini, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart. Love is never apart from a pure heart. It's always the product of a pure heart. And when we have love, we have faith. And this gives us patience toward man and God patience toward us, without which it's impossible to please God or procure from God. Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives us, of course, the definition of faith, evidence, uh, substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. But then you get to verse 6. It makes an interesting statement when it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you know the measure of our faith in God is the measure of his pleasure in us? The measure of my faith in God. Whenever Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, another occasion in the Word of God, it said that three times God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus himself said, I do always those things that please the Father. That's a good thing. God loves us, even those of us who do not pleasure him. He loves the sinner with pity but he loves the saint with pleasure. And he loves us with pleasure because we are a pleasure to him. And so the measure of our faith in him is the measure of his pleasure in us. And I don't know about you, but I like to please him as much as I can. By this shall all men know, he says, that you are my disciples because you have love one to another. You have love. I think uh, probably the one, one evidence of my interest in God when I came into the little church of the Nazarene over in Kennard, Ohio, was when I walked in the door, they were people that loved us. I've never seen anybody love like they loved. I never got over all the things they did for us as a family and during those days of tragedy, my father accidentally ran over a little five-year-old sister and took her life and they day after day brought food into our families and they ministered to us. I never got over it. Uh, when you go to the church, I was just a teenage kid. I didn't have anything to offer the church as far as money's concerned, but you wouldn't have known it. They acted like I was important. They took me under their arms. And I think I see the same kind of spirit here with your young people, how you show great affection and great uh, respect for the, your young people and teenagers and boys and girls. And I think it was this love element that was missing. And when I found that, I didn't want to be without that. And it took me a few weeks before I was able to receive Christ into my heart. And he shed abroad in my heart the Holy Spirit and the love of God. I wouldn't want to be without that. And consequently, if we are his disciples, it is by this we evidence we are his disciples. Because we have love one to another. But I would also add... God gets his reputation in this world through you and me. What kind of a reputation are we giving God as Christians or as disciples as the world watches us and as the enemy likes to distort 
and to accuse and to cast all manner of aspersions. It's the love of God. And so he says, you must give everything else secondary. I must be first. I'll either be Lord of all or not be Lord at all. And then if I am, then shall you be my disciples. But if you don't, he says three times, you cannot be my disciple. I want to be his disciple. It means learner. I want to learn. I've been trying to across the many years that I met him for the first time. And I'm sure you do as well. But I wonder tonight if uh, we could stand together. And Tom, I'm going to ask if we could sing a hymn together uh, as we stand. And I'd like for you to stand with your heads bowed with me. And I'd like to invoke God's presence and what he would have us do at this moment. Father, 